we're keeping going on our series in Revelation, uh, and I'm going to begin this um, with a basic premise. And this basic premise is that you, me, and everybody we've ever met are theologians. So, does that mean you're going to be spending your whole life writing these massive books around these little things that we find? Not necessarily, but I can say this basic premise is true because you have had thoughts about what God's like. I mean, have you ever said, God's like this, or that's not the God I know, or God's like, you've ever talked about what God has done? In essence, that's theology. Theology is the study of God. You are a theologian. But not just a theologian, you're also a practical theologian. You don't just have high-in-the-sky ideas about what God's like. You actually place those ideas and you put them into practice. Right? If you believe that, if you have a view of God that He is full of wrath, that He is angry at you, that He's looking to punish you, what do you think that's going to do to your potential relationship with Him? That view of God is going to influence you probably running away from Him. You're not going to want to have anything to do with Him if you have a picture of Him that's like that. If you have a picture of God that's just, He's out there, He doesn't really care, He may have started the world, He may be Creator, but he's not sustainer, or he's not actually involved in the midst of everything, well then, if he's not present, then he's, you're going to be able to just kind of do whatever you want. You're going to be able to make self-God as opposed to that. So your root system, your theology, is going to show up in your fruits. But not only are you a theologian and a practical theologian, I'm going to say you do the hard work of a missionary, which means you do the work of contextualization. Yeah, that's right, I went there. You take that, and it shows up in the specific place you do that. Why can I say you do that? The clothes you're wearing right now. That's the work of contextualization. The language we're speaking right now. That's the, the language that we use. How you live in an MC. That's a picture of you taking all this and just putting it right into practice. So we often talk about... The, this concept being root to fruit. Our understanding of who God is and what He's done is the root of our lives. That ultimately shows up in the fruit, our actions, our practices, our emotions, our thoughts. And all that finds itself in a specific environment. It could be weather like today that was beautiful right now, but about an hour ago, there were trees falling all over the place. And everybody's texting me, the power where we're going to be? I'm like, we can stay warm. We're going to be fine. But that's the environment, the context we are in. So our beliefs show up in our actions. But what happens when that right pathway about this, our theology leads to our actions, and then in our context? What happens if that goes backwards? What happens if the context has more to say, or where we are, determines more about who we are than what we believe about God. What happens when where we are in a specific place, the ways of the, the time and place, what happens if that has a bigger influence on your and my picture of what God is like? 
the end of the day, that's exactly what happened in this church. Where they were determined who they were. And that's all because they had lost their theology. We've been in the middle of this series called Postcards from Jesus. We're looking at the seven different churches of Revelation. So we're not going to be going through the whole book of Revelation. No bowls and signs and all that fun. But we're looking at these seven churches and we're recognizing that Jesus spoke specifically to these seven churches. And in speaking to these seven churches, he's not identifying things that they're doing well, things they need to grow in, but it's not just for them. It's for everybody that names the name of Jesus. And so as we go through this, we're, I'm wanting to remind you, as we look at their temptations that they fell into, I want you to ask two questions. What does it say about me? Am I drawn towards the temptation that they fell into of these seven churches? Oh, the second question is, what does this say about us? What does this, um, how does this point to where we are? And what we as God's people, so much better away, where are we prone to fall? So let's dive into this text. Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at the church in Pergamum. So a few things about the church in Pergamum. Notice how Jesus recognizes where they are. He says where you dwell. This language of dwell is this is where you make your home. You could say this is where you abide. These aren't people that are just kind of going through. They're not looking to um, move from place to place. These are people that have been there. They're steady. They're long term. And what does he say about the place that they dwell? Two times it says where Satan dwells or where Satan's thrones. Let's I'll simplify it this way. Where they are is really difficult. Really, really difficult to follow Jesus. Pergamum historically, um, Pergamum literally means parchment. So they were the uh, largest producers of parchment in the ancient world, which means that they also had the largest library. So it was second only to Alexandria historically. So really highly educated group of people. But not only that, they had a lot of gods that they worshipped. They had a savior god named Zeus. Remember that? The, the yeah. That, they had, he had a pedestal 800 feet high in the middle of the city so that anybody throughout any time in the city could look to their savior, which was Zeus. So they had, they had a god of wisdom, war. I'll, I'll focus on one. They had a god of healing. So they were wealthy. So whenever you see places of wealth, you tend to see a high emphasis of health as well. Because what good is your wealth if you don't have health to enjoy? So where they were dwelling, they had this serpent-like god called Asclepius, the god of healing. Anybody seen the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark recently? The snake scene? You know, they go into the, the pit, and there's snakes all over him, and he's freaking out. They did that voluntarily, so that if a snake rubbed up against them, they would be healed. Creepy, right? So imagine being a Christian, trying to live in a very wealthy, very smart, very multi-worshipful type of environment. And what does Jesus address them as? What, he says, hey, I recognize where you dwell. Satan's throne is there. Where you are is really, really, really hard. 
Now, this is very much unlike where we are right now today in Federal Way, Northeast Tacoma, in the year of our Lord, 2021. It's, it's not easy to follow Jesus here where we are. Uh, the Gospel Coalition published an article this week um, called, Should Christians Relocate to Conservative Areas? In it, they talked about, quote-unquote, left UGs, and they say something like this. They say, political polarity in the U.S. is it's expressing itself geographically. People want to live where they feel their values are affirmed. Where we are, we're seeing a lot of this happen. And I've said this before, um, and I've said it amongst our team, but I'll say it again. People are leaving the South Bay County area. It's, it's not hard to see that. It's becoming more difficult to live out our, the foundation of our faith. And so I want to read something from Spurgeon as you think of that. And even so difficult, before I go there, so difficult that I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody in this room in the last year and a half has asked the question, should I still be here? Like, that looks a lot easier over there than right here. Why in the world should I dwell like they dwell there? It's not easier, it's more difficult. Listen to what Spurgeon says. It's not at all a bad thing to be put where there is opposition, because we shall not be stopped by but shall by that very process be made to shine all the brighter as lights in the world. If you and I are put in difficult positions where we seem to be unable to shine to the glory of God, we must ask the Lord specially to constitute us, fill us, so that we can better reflect His brightness. Their temptation was that where they were was going to determine what they believed about God. Where they were, where Satan dwelled, the difficulty of the context of where they were was going to influence how they went about living their life, rather than their theology first. And I think that's a really strong temptation for you and I today. So the question is, what is how did they do with it? Did they... Do they pass this test? Do they do well with it? Well, verse 13, Jesus starts out with saying, hey, you actually did. I, you held fast to my name. You did not deny faith in me, even in days of Antipas. They were faithful in the midst of martyrdom. There was a person in our church. Imagine, they were probably about the church of this size group of people. Imagine one of us being martyred for our faith. And yet, the church didn't run away. They were main, main faithful. They stayed the course. Like, that's, I think that's good, right? I'd be, if I got this, I'd be like, yeah. Like, Jesus is encouraging. That's awesome. They were faithful. Praise God. But, they were flawed as well. Where they were found was difficult. They were faithful, and yet they had some significant flaws in adhering to two specific false theologies. They forgot that their theology mattered and they started to follow other ones. And two specific ones are mentioned. The first one is based on Numbers chapter 31. This is Balaam and Balak. Balaam 
um, in essence, relax his principles to participate in something that was evil. In this city, in Pergamum, there was a group of people advocating for participating and sharing meals in pagan temples, which was not only a participation in demon worship, but it also directly connected with sexual immorality. Worship of God of, during that time was often connected to sexual acts. That was how worship was done. So they didn't just go to the temple and hear what other people were teaching. They were performing the acts of worship to this false god. They laid down their Christian principles so that they could be more acceptable to their culture and as a result they received a rebuke from Jesus. At the end of the day, they did not want to be left out. They wanted to be part of. They didn't want to lose opportunity because of their theology. And so, there's a group of people, it wasn't everybody, Jesus specifically says some of them, some of you did not want to be left out, so you laid down your theology. You forgot why that is the foundation, and you just went about going doing what they were doing. The second group is similar, but a little bit different. This was those that held the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We saw this in Ephesus a few weeks ago. This group worked to find a way to compromise the Christian life and the cultural customs of the day. They were attempting to include as much culture in the kingdom as possible, without remaining any source of distinction. They, their theology was, God's grace is so magnificent, so powerful, so wonderful, that I'm just going to go on and continue to sin, because it doesn't matter, because I'm already saved. Like, I got my ticket to heaven, therefore, how I live now doesn't matter. And so, Jesus comes at them and he says, hey, what you're doing is wrong and they need to repent. And these two groups are two temptations that we have when it comes to a right picture of who God is and what he's like. And I think there's three temptations that when it comes to understanding the importance of our picture of God and our theology that we could fall into today. The first one is ignorance. I think this is similar to the first group. They didn't want, they were ignoring the teaching, teachings so that they wouldn't be left out. They, they were wanting what they had, and so therefore they just turned a blind eye to the understanding of Scripture, understanding of theology. <clears throat> now, me, I have been accused rightly of sometimes being too theological, using too big a word using concepts that don't make sense um, just to everyday people. And I'm going to be honest with you, the reason I do that is because of this very thing. Because I see a lot of ignorance when it comes to theology in our day. You could, I, you could trace, and I face this premise off, you could trace what, everything going on in our culture, in the church and beyond, based on theology. It's that important. It's showing up in every single area of life. And so I probably have, I, I have gone too far in this at times, trying to make it too much. Because I don't want us as God's people to be ignorant. 
I don't want to have a theologically shallow people. That, I mean, I was raised in a church, I was raised, God saved me through a church that the pastor literally said in retirement, I don't care how mature you are, I just want to make sure you have a ticket to heaven. Now, his evangelist part was wonderful. God bless that man. He, he helped me understand that. But it was only that. And, and I look at what's going on around us, and I'm like, no, no, we can't be ignorant of this stuff. Because when we take our eyes off of the importance of who God is and what he's like, our theology, we're going to put our eyes somewhere else. That's the first one, temptation is ignorance. The second temptation is more like the Nicolaitans. And this is what I'll call syncretism. Syncretism. It's when you're, you have two sets of things and you're trying to sync them together, when there's actually supposed to be distinction. As God's people, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that we're to be salt and light for the world. We talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount, but saltiness is distinct from the thing that it's put on. But, and by being distinct from, it protects the thing it's on from the worst of itself. So think of all the salt going on meat. It makes sure bacteria doesn't grow. Something that's latent potential in the meat, salt protects it from making it worse. But salt also enhances. It makes the thing that it's put on and it tastes better. If you ever have bland food at home, add a little bit of salt. If you remember that sermon, don't add too much salt to potatoes. That, like, that's no go. So, salt is to be distinct from synchronists. What they want to do is they want to make this the exact same thing. What the world does we do. And we make no distinction between it. So we end up losing the goodness that we bring to culture because we have bleeding hearts. We want to be there. We want to be one way. And I think there's a third one. Not just ignorance, not just syncretism, but I think there's also one happening in our day that I'll call fundamentalism. And this is what I mean by fundamentalism in the language I'm using today. Fundamentalism is making things that are secondarily important and making it of utmost importance. You're taking things, secondary issues, things are not absolutely essential, and you're making them primarily essential. And so what happens is you and I if you have taken the secondary issue, it's not about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You take whether it's some theological secondary issue. And I'll be honest with you. We are in, coming out of an environment where the church has done this for the last couple hundred years. We're Protestants, which means we like to protest. Which means that we tend to find secondary things to disagree with people and create a whole separate group. That allows us to think how we want to think and separate from one another. We have hundreds of years of history of doing that. But we have dozens of years of denominationalism where that's only fostered. We, we, are, we, we Unless you take a big 30,000 per view of history and say, like, wow, there's a really big intensity of fundamentalism in our day. And we are just swimming in it and we have to just name it. So it's taking secondary issues and making them primary. Non-essential and making them essential. And so then we only start connecting with people that have the same viewpoint on us around secondary issues. When we have this way, it's not about Jesus anymore. It's not about who he is and what he's done. 
it then becomes about your little niche project that you're thinking about at the time. So what happens if people think differently than you around something that's not essential? Are you allowed to coexist? I'm going to name something that's happening in the church right now as well. You're seeing this happen a lot in churches when it comes to COVID protocols. You're seeing it happen a lot in church when it comes to politics. You're seeing it happen a lot in church where certain things are taking importance over things. It's happening. Is it all fundamentalism? Not necessarily. I'm not accusing that. And yet, we have where we are right now is so hard. And we have the temptation to do any of these things. It's so hard, I'm just going to put my head in the sand and ignore it and wait for it to go. Or it's so hard, I'm just not even going to worry about it and I'm just going to go with the way Or it's so hard that I'm going to find one thing and only connect with people around me. Rather than the center essential piece to this is to be Jesus. This is, and I'll take this an even step further. Why this is also hard for us right now in this moment is that those that have made it about secondary things, their secondary things, because they are so essential, uh, they it's hard for people to be able to see what is essential and what is not essential. What is primary and what is not primary. Because the fever pitch is so high right now it, it, that it requires a little bit of like, okay, take a deep breath for a second. So how do I define essential? I ask myself this question. Does this apply to every Christian at every time in every place. Does this apply to every Christian at every time in every place? Because if you're saying you must and that's not true, that's important, but it may not be essential. Do you have to place your faith in Jesus to be saved? Yes, essential, absolutely necessary. Do you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, essential for everybody. Right? Do you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Godman? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely important. They, this church had a group of people that made non-essential essential. And brothers and sisters, it's so easy for us to do that right now. So easy for us to do that right now. Our theology matters. Your theology matters. Where you get your theology matters. How you use the scriptures matter. Because what, at the end of the day, what is Jesus bringing them back to? He understands where they're found. He recognizes that they were faithful in ways. They're flawed. But what does he go back to? He goes back to the word. Three times in this passage, he refers to the words of Jesus. The first time, uh, verse 12, is a connection to Hebrews 4.12. I'm going to read this. It says, um, for the word of God is living and active, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirits of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
Verse 12 literally says double-edged sword, two-edged sword. He's literally speaking about what he says. Where they got off, what's the answer? The words of Jesus. Verse 16, he talks about he's going to war against them with the sword of the mouth. What's the solution to that? It's theology. It's right thinking about God. In verse 17, it talks about he's going to give some of the hidden manna. Manna points to Jesus himself, the food of substance in um, the Exodus story, and he comes and he says he's the bread of life, the manna that has come down from heaven to sustain his people. It's ultimately about the where we go back to that. They went off the rails because the theology went off the rails. And brothers and sisters, that's the temptation that's in front of us today. They were faithful, wonderful. But where they were found was so hard that they lost focus of what was essential and what was not essential. And so what does is, what is Jesus bring them back to? The scriptures. Brings them back to the scriptures. I mean, I know this is a perfect setup for the narrative, right? I promise you. And I was thinking of the series. I didn't really know about this perfect place until I started diving in. I just started diving in. I'm like, okay, this is perfect. It goes back to this. The difficulty, the beauty, the wonderfulness, the, uh, the, the slugging through passage, but also the beautiful things that sometimes Jesus just all of a sudden like makes himself known by just a word that jumps off the page. To get back and to continue to dive deeper and look for it and, and, and be filled by this. And as we move from that, we realize that from the scriptures we can do the mystical mysterious thing of abiding in Christ. When we get our minds, and as we get our minds right, we can also get our hearts mysteriously united with the triune God himself. It's not an either or, but for this church, they lost that place.